Hi, and welcome to Episode 5 of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us for this conversation today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, Founding Director of Sinai and Synapses. What prompts us to believe something, whether that's a religious credo or a scientific explanation? Are those processes of belief the same or different when we think about religious or scientific answers? What counts as evidence for that belief, and who decides? And how does this help us understand the arguments today about facts, truth, and even reality? These were a few of the questions we discussed with Professor Tanya Lombroso, a professor of psychology at Princeton University, as well as an associate of the Department of Philosophy at the University Center for Human Values. She received her PhD in psychology from Harvard University in 2006, and her research aims to address foundational questions about cognition using the empirical tools of cognitive psychology and the conceptual tools of analytic philosophy. She blogs about psychology, philosophy, and cognitive science at Psychology Today. This conversation was recorded on January 12th, 2021. Welcome, everybody, to our fifth episode of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman. I'm the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science, trying to explore and discuss some of the biggest questions that we're facing in our world, where we need wisdom from both science and religion, ranging from questions of genetic engineering to questions of climate change to something that I think many of us are thinking about now, which is how do we have a shared set of facts and reality when we're living in a very, very fractured world and country right now? And so I am really excited to be sitting here today with my friend, Professor Tanya Lombroso of Princeton University, and her research explores questions like, why are we so compelled to explain some aspects of our social and physical environment, but not others? And how does the process of seeking explanations affect learning? And how does the quality of an explanation affect our judgments and decisions? Do these features of explanation help us achieve particular goals, or do they sometimes lead us astray, leading to errors in reasoning and decision-making. And that's something that we're really grappling with and struggling with here right now in our country as our capital was stormed and there are real, half of the country is living in, in one set of reality and another part of the country is living in another set of reality. So Professor Lombroso, Tanya, if I may, uh, it's wonderful to be sitting with you, with you here this afternoon. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me and for um, including me in this great Sinai and Synapse series. So I would love for you to be able to share a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and, and particularly some of the, the work that you do um, of the phrase that we might call between being rational and, and rationalization. You talk about that, that the explanations that we look for things, sometimes we come at it with a particular goal and sometimes we can be very objective. Um, so what prompts us to, to say, like, this is the truth that I want to find? And, and what prompts us to be able to say, I'm actually going to be a little bit dispassionate here and, and see wherever the evidence leads me? Yeah, well, I, let me say first why I think that's so challenging. I think there's a number of reasons. But one of the reasons it's, it's challenging is because it's not always clear what we should be counting as legitimate source of evidence or legitimate influence on our belief and what isn't legitimate. So I'll give you an example that comes from something we've been thinking about in my research. So suppose that you come across some, some evidence that incriminates a good friend, but the friend says, look, 
you know, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. You're my friend. You've got to believe me. Um, you might feel compelled to think, well, you know, this, is, this person's my friend. I should give them the benefit of the doubt. And so on the one hand, you have this evidence and that should affect your belief. But on the other hand, it might seem very reasonable that you should give your friend the benefit of the doubt. Now, in giving your friend the benefit of the doubt, are you rationalizing? Are you doing something irrational? Um, or is that actually a reasonable constraint on your belief? Should you maybe have a higher standard of evidence when it comes to your friend than when it comes to a stranger? Um, so I think I raise this example to just hopefully get your intuitions going that there are real complex, what philosophers would call normative questions about how we ought to reason in a bunch of cases. It's not always straightforward that this is the evidence and these are the illegitimate influences on belief and it's a matter of drawing a really sharp dividing line. Um, but, but, you know, sort of even acknowledging the complexities there, I think, you know, we can still ask a version of your question, which is how can we, I mean, presumably as individuals, we all want to be on the rational side, not on the rationalizing <laughs> side, <laughs> right? So maybe a way to, to re-ask your question is, are there strategies that we can adopt that would help us be on the, on the rational side rather than the rationalizing side? Um, and so I think, I think one thing that's really useful here is thinking about what kinds of mechanisms do we see in science to do this? Because right? science is arguably our most successful institutional effort to try to systematically get at the, the truth, reality. Um, and if you look at the way science works, we have all sorts of checks and balances. We have systems to try to acknowledge conflicts of interests, to make processes transparent in reasoning and so on. Um, and a really fundamental part of the scientific process is trying to think about possible alternative explanations for your evidence. Um, so, so sometimes we do this as scientists ourselves. We think about, well, what are other things that could explain this? How can I test them? Sometimes our very helpful reviewers and peers in the community will do that work for us and will point out all of the other ways of thinking about things that we haven't thought about. But that's a super important process. Um, and it's one that we can carry on in our everyday lives. We don't have to be scientists to do this. So um, in, in social psychology, one of the most effective strategies for, for de-biasing is a sort of a technical term here, our own thinking is a strategy called consider the opposite. And it's exactly what it sounds like, right? So if you're just considering one particular hypothesis, you're going to naturally come up with all of the reasons why it might be right but sometimes taking a moment to explicitly consider the opposite, to consider alternatives is really simple, but it's powerful. And it, it, it's one thing that can help. And, and that's, you know, it reminds me of some of the conversations of when you're presented with, with evidence, if it's something that you like and you want to be true, you ask the question, can I believe this? And if, it, and if it's opposite, on the opposite, then you're asked, must I believe this? And it's a lot easier to be able to say, oh, this might be true. I can believe this. And it just confirms my, my belief system versus must I believe this? Like, I really don't want to, do I really have to accept this? And that's a, that's a much harder thing to be able to do. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. I think it really illustrates how we might hold different kinds of claims to different standards of evidence. Um, and some versions of that may well be legitimate. I mean, for example, if you're thinking about um, whether or not a vaccine is safe that you're going to give to, to hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions of people, um, you might hold yourself to a different standard of evidence than if you were testing an experimental treatment that's only going to affect 10 people, right? And so there's lots of cases where things have 
the, co the costs of being right or wrong are going to depend on the consequences of, of how we act. So I think when it comes to our actions and our policies, we're very used to thinking you might want to hold things to different standards of evidence because the consequences are different. I think when it comes to our beliefs, it's a little bit more complicated. I, maybe for our beliefs, we'd want to say you should just believe whatever the evidence points to, not kind of allow yourself to shift the standards of evidence depending on whether you want to believe something or not. Well, and you've, and you've talked about this in, in some of your writing also, and you actually brought this up at, at the very beginning of your friend who's been accused of a, of a crime, that we use the word evidence a lot, but there are really two different realms where the word evidence is used. One is in science, to be able to say the evidence for this or that or the other, and that's ideally dispassionate and objective, and the evidence is supposed to show what you want to show. But the other realm where evidence becomes really important is in law, and there actually, you kind of do want to use motivated reasoning. You want to be able to use the evidence to build a case for or against someone. And, and sometimes our brains are lawyers and sometimes they're scientists, but I think our brains actually tend much more to be lawyers. They want to be able to find that, that argument and say, this is the accurate thing rather than, oh, here's what the world is. And I will be a, this disembodied intellect that, that, that will just find the truth of the capital T most of our life is trying to be able to make a case for one thing or another, which is the way the world needs to work. You need to make an argument for particular policies or, or where you're going to live or how someone who you're going to vote for. You need to be able to make those arguments there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the majority of research in psychology supports what you just suggested, which is that we're more often following the lawyer mode of first figuring out a conclusion and then marshalling the evidence rather than dispassionately surveying the evidence and then coming up with a conclusion. But I do want to put in a plug for the, for the view that we, we know we have to be capable of sometimes following the more scientific mold where we see where the evidence takes us because ultimately we are interacting with the world uh, the world operates according to constraints that are not the constraints we necessarily want it to operate under, right? So if you take a case like an engineer trying to build a bridge, if that engineer was only operating by, by the lawyer model and what they wanted to believe and all of these other kinds of influences, then their, their bridge wouldn't stand up. It would be a bad bridge and we'd get this feedback from the world that we screwed up because it doesn't work, right? So there, there are mechanisms for forcing us to, uh, in some ways, be constrained by accuracy because it is accurate beliefs that are the ones that allow us to make effective predictions, to effectively control aspects of the world, to build the technology that we're using right now to talk to each other. Um, so I think even if we have lots of lawyerly tendencies in that respect, the fact that we need to effectively interact with the world is going to be something that pulls us in the, the other way some of the time. Although that you know, what's interesting, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this in your work on, on science and religion, which is that there are also facts are are different depending on the realm that you're living in. So there are scientific facts, and then there are what we might call social facts, um, right? The number of votes in Georgia in the 2020 election is not—I mean, it is a physical piece of you know piece of paper, but it's also an agreement that that will dictate who is going to be the president of the United States. That's a social fact or religion. Um, is really, that's very few physical facts there. It's a lot of social facts of an agreement that um, 
you know, I'm, I'm a rabbi. If I go to uh, get communion, that is not going to be a fact for me, right? It's not going to turn, the, the, the wine is not going to turn into Jesus's blood for me because that's not part of my social reality. And so how do you distinguish between explanations and ideas from a scientific perspective where there may be a physical fact that we need to be able to understand and a physical phenomenon versus a social or religious or philosophical fact? Because um, I know you've done some, some work on, on how we approach those kinds of questions in different kinds of ways. Yeah, I think that's a really complicated question. So I, part of me bristles at the idea of talking about some of these as facts. You know, part, part of what I think is, is at issue is what do we consider the realm of the factual? Uh, I mean, I can tell you how many people think about this. Um, there's, there's a lot of research that's looked at which sorts of things we take to be a matter of fact and which sorts of things we take to be merely opinions. And so there's some cases where I, I think we'd get widespread consensus. So if, if, um, if you and I, if I think a square has four sides and you think a square has five sides, we can't both be right. <laughs> <laughs> There's certain kinds of mathematical facts and certain kinds of basic perceptual or physical facts. People tend to have this view where there's, there's one fact of the matter, one thing is right. If you get disagreement, you can't have two people who are both right. But then you get other realms like uh, preferences, um, aesthetic preferences, food preferences. You know, So if I think chocolate's the best ice cream in the world and you think vanilla is the best ice cream in the world, can we both be right? A lot of people are willing to say like, yeah, there's a sense in which they can both be right, right? Or I think Picasso is the best artist and you think, you know, Gokeef is the best artist and so on. Um, so it seems like you already get this variation where sometimes people think something's a fact of the matter and sometimes people think, you know, actually we can kind of have different, I don't want to necessarily call them facts, but we can have different beliefs without thinking those beliefs are in conflict. Religion turns out to be a really interesting case here, right? So suppose that you believe that there's a God that has certain kinds of characteristics and I do not. Can we both be right? Um, how do people respond to that? Well, it turns out they respond somewhere in between the way they respond to something like a mathematical or basic perceptual fact and the way they respond to something like a mere preference. People are more inclined to say that we can both be right about that or that that can be right for you and something else can be right for me than they are when it comes to how many sides a square has or whether two plus two equals four or whether or not you know there's a table in front of us. Um, but one thing that, that we found, at least in our research, is that people who are more religious seem to think about the religious claims more in that objective fact of the matter sort of way. Right. I was about to guess that. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I think that, that that answers part of your question, right? It says something about how do people tend to think about this? Well, people do tend to think there's variation in the world in terms of what sorts of facts we have to agree on and what sorts of things might be different for you or right for you versus right for me, or we can sort of agree to disagree. Um, but, but I think there's also part of your question where, how do I put this? There's cases where you might want people to have more agreement than we currently observe, right? right. <laughs> something what like could that possibly be <laughs> referencing right now? Um, and I think that raises a puzzle about why don't you see that kind of agreement? I mean, especially if you're on the side whether, you know, a religious person can have a version of this too, but if you're on the side of thinking, look, there's just a fact of the matter about how many votes there were in Georgia. <laughs> it's just a, an empirical question. You just go out and measure it and maybe we have a little bit of measurement uncertainty, but that's just a factual matter. Like there's no further complexity there. So it, it, sometimes it's hard to reconcile how you could get the kind of disagreement that you see. Um, and, 
And you know, it reminds me, like I think Yuval Harari talks about what he about um, intersubjective reality. And so there's you know there's objective reality of you know there's four four sides. Square has four sides. There's the opinion of chocolate versus vanilla, and then there's what he would call intersubjective reality, which is something that that exists only because we all agree that it exists. And the examples that he talks about are are nations, religion, and money. Um, and there's a there's a like there's an interesting video uh, on YouTube of how many countries are there, and and it's not just a go and count how many countries there are because there are places where is this actually a country? Is Kashmir a country? Is the Palestinian Authority is that Palestine? Is that Israel? Is that the West Bank? Is that the occupied territory? Or de- you're depending on who you ask. It's not a simple question there, um, and so and a lot of it is. Everybody agree. Like everybody agrees, the United States is a country, but there are there are different parts of the world where is this actually really? Does this country really exist? I think very similar to does 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 this religion exist? You know, it does God exist? Is not it's not an objective question. It's a lot of questions in in the way of of is does this nation exist? And and some people, most people, you know, if everyone says yes, that's going to take us in one direction. And if it's, well, it's an opinion, that's also problematic as well. Yeah. I mean, so, so some vocabulary that philosophers sometimes use is they'll talk about natural kinds. And those are supposed to be the kinds or categories that just exist in the world. And it's a matter of going out and discovering them. Um, people talk about sort of carving nature at its joints. And we often think about things like uh, be it gold as an element. Is that just something we just discover? That's not a social construct. That's a thing we discovered about the world as a meaningful category. But then you get to things like, what is it for something to be a country? What is it for something something to be a person? Um, all of these other things, which become you know, arguably not natural kinds, they're, they're other things. And I think there's a real danger sometimes of that thinking that all those things that it, when it comes to everything beyond the very clear cut factual natural kinds in the world that were it's just a matter of opinion and anything goes and i think i think that's a mistake i think even when you're in that category where you're talking about social kinds or moral kinds and institutional kinds you know there's still real conversations that we can have about better and worse ways to describe things and yeah i mean i think yeah, and i think you know what's what's interesting of of religion and seeing seeing a lot of the ways I think, by the way, Judaism is often portrayed in interfaith weddings and, inter- and interfaith couples on in, in television, which is often portrayed as like, well, it's all fine. We all love each other and it's all good. And it's and it's that's that that might be the case, but it's also not as simple as that to be able to be like, well, we're or, 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 or you know, an interfaith get together of we all believe in the same God and it's all kumbaya. Like, well, no, there are real differences here. Um, Cause you also don't want to say, no, the only accurate thing that can happen is we should only be representing two halakhically observant Jews. And that's what, that's what we should be representing or no, everyone should be Protestant. And that's the only kind of conversation. That's the truth. That's also really problematic. And so, um, yeah, like how do we navigate that, that middle ground where it it's it it often is is um, perceived and shown as as these two absolute poles when in fact most of our life is somewhere in between. Yeah, I and mean, it's such a hard question. There's so many parts to it, but let me say a couple things. So one is, you know, a few years ago I, I got in trouble with a blog post that I wrote <laughs> for NPR, where 
um, I saw a lot of what seemed like unproductive discussions about these kinds of issues. And so I, I, I tried to argue for an alternative to common ground. So the, the idea behind common ground is that when you're thinking about this, what you should do is figure out what we all agree on and that that should be the basis for some sort of shared understanding or shared reality. And so maybe we can all agree that, that you know, we, we value love or we should all love each other. And then that becomes the foundation for something. And it seemed to me like it's problematic to assume that there is going to be common ground. There might not be, but we should still be able to have a meaningful engagement. And so I argued for what I called charitable ground. And the idea was that it doesn't come from the presupposition that if you and I disagree, that we necessarily are going to find points of fundamental agreement that we can build up from, but we should nonetheless interpret each other charitably. And, this, and I should assume that you hold your beliefs for what you take to be good reasons and um, that you assume that I hold my beliefs for what I take to be good reasons. And from that starting point, we can then have a conversation. Um, and to be frank, this was in part in response to a certain kind of rhetoric you see from people who may or may not be named Dawkins, among other things, um, where it feels to be like the, um, uh, like you don't see that kind of charitable assumption. You, you see an assumption that people hold certain beliefs because they're stupid, because they're ignorant. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a very unproductive starting point for conversations. So I think that's, that might be, one part of the story is let's not assume common ground, but let's start from this assumption of charitable ground. And let me start to understand what you take to be good reasons for your belief. And, and then we can have a conversation about, well, is that, why, why should that be a good reason for belief or not? And, and you know, that, that links actually to a text in, in Pirkei Avot in, in rabbinic literature, where it said that you should judge everyone in the pan of merit, um, which, which doesn't mean everything that someone says is going to be accurate and it doesn't mean I'm going to agree, but it means that when they are speaking, I am going to, to, to assume that they are coming at it from a, from a perspective of, um, of integrity of, or at least self-integrity and, and being able to say, this is, this is why I'm holding this. I'm not saying this to be able to anger you. I'm saying this, which is not always the case online, but, um, but to be able to say, I, I'm saying something and I'm going to judge you not as a jerk who's trying to make my life difficult, but as somebody who's trying to be able to explain their, their perspective. And I think that's a really, that's a very helpful point of view and a, and a way to, yeah. to move forward a little bit. Neat. I'll have to follow up to get that reference from you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think another, another thing I'd want to add, I, I have to confess, I have a harder time knowing how to think about the religion cases that you're thinking about. But I think there's a lot of cases that aren't, aren't religion and aren't science that are maybe easier to think about. And something there might be like a moral disagreement. And, and so that's a, that's a domain where I think sometimes you get people wanting to assimilate moral things to scientific things and treating it as if it's just a fact of the matter. This is, this is the way it is morally and we've discovered it. End of story. And the other extreme would be people being a certain kind of relativist where they say like, oh, well, anything goes. That's right for you, but not for me. Um, and I think both of those are kind of problematic because we're not just going to figure out what's morally right by doing science. Um, but it also seems like it's very wrong to, to, to say, you know, anything goes and any moral perspective is equally valid. So what are going to count? How, how are we going to, how can we begin to have conversations about that and figure out what the morally right view is? And there I, I get a lot of inspiration from looking at how philosophy works. Philosophy is, um, a potentially secular, I mean, historically often tied to religion, but potentially secular um, set of strategies and approaches for thinking about how you construct a good argument that might be informed by what we know from science, for example, but in, in domains where science doesn't give us the answer. 
and there are going to be better and worse arguments. Um, you know, it's not the case that anything goes. And and I'm thinking uh, Paul Rood Wolpe, who's at Emory University, he gave a, a TED talk a couple of years ago. And one of the things that he said is, Everyone can complete the sentence. Ethics is about the difference between right and, and everyone yelled wrong. And he says, right, that's incorrect. Ethics questions are about right versus right. What happens when you've got competing values, right? It's not, should I murder this patient or not? If you're a doctor, like that's not it. There's no doctor that's making that decision of, oh, I know, I, I want this person to die. But it's rather of a question of what, what should be the compassionate way if this person um, isn't responding to the treatment here? What's the, what's the relationship between the patient and the patient's family? What are, you know, what's the relationship of privacy elements, right? Those, that's where there are real questions here. And it's, and it's, and, and that's where I think we need elements of, of philosophy and, and law and boundaries that can also potentially shift that, right? Like being able to say, here's what the, here's what the boundary is right now, but new technology, new information that may allow that boundary to shift if it needs to, um, because of new information or new ideas or, or the world has changed, right? The way that we think about LGBTQ marriage, right? that's the, the view on the morality of that has changed drastically in, in 30, or 30 or 40 years, even in the last 10 years there. So the, you'd think the, the, what, is, what is right, I think is, is, very, is often very socially constructed, but that can shift and change based on different knowledge. And sometimes that's informed by, by natural science, and sometimes that's informed by philosophy and religion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people make a distinction which is related to the one that we've been talking about between facts and values, mm -hmm. right? Where science can tell us about the facts, but it can't tell us about the values. Um, I, I think that's mostly right, but then I think you often get these very complicated cases that are right at the beginning and it's not so obvious what's going to be, you know, what our source of values is and what's going to be a good argument for values and so on. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's part of what's, what's challenging. I mean, I would love to hear a little more about the work that you're doing of, of what's viewed as a fact versus what's viewed as an opinion. And how does that, how does that play itself out um, in terms of people's responses or in other ways in which they're interacting in the world? Because that's, if, if you're saying, this perspective is a fact that often shuts down future conversation. That doesn't open up a lot of charitable conversation because if I'm right and you're a Nazi, then that obviously I'm not, I, I don't want to talk with a Nazi. That's, that would, that's a very clear distinction here. Um, so how do we, how do we move to a conversation where, um, where people are thinking about those, the discussions of what's a fact versus what's an opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think saying something's a mere opinion can also shut down conversation too, right? Because if I say, well, here's my opinion, I like chocolate ice cream. And you say, well, here's my opinion, I like vanilla ice cream. And we're like, okay, we have different opinions. That's the end of the conversation, right? So I feel like, I feel like there's actually kind of a, something you want in the middle there where we can agree that, that there's a shared subject matter we're trying to get to the truth of. So there's a little bit of research suggesting that people approach, and this is not my own research, but suggesting that people approach these issues differently depending on whether they're in a competitive or cooperative sort of mindset. So if we're in a mode of thinking that we're debating each other, 
we're trying to figure out the single truth here about which ice cream flavor is best or which conception of God is best or, or which political view is best. If we go into it competitively, we're more likely to approach it as a matter of right and wrong, where there's a single fact of the matter we're trying to, to get at. If we approach it more cooperatively, like let's together try to figure out what's going on here. On the one hand, that leads to what's probably more constructive conversation, mm -hmm. but it also seems to lead to a more subjectivist sort of view of what the truth is like. Um, so that, that's one sort of interesting tension, I think, in trying to generate constructive dialogue. Um, in my own research, one of the things that we've looked at is what people take to be a good reason for belief and how that might vary across types of people. So some, some of the work that I have done is with um, someone who's now a collaborator, Emlyn Metz, who did some studies that were motivated initially by interviewing people who had different views about human origins in terms of their views about creationism and evolution. And one of the things that she noticed in these interviews were that these two different communities of people she was talking to seemed to, to talk about different reasons for belief. So the um, people who endorsed evolution would talk about scientific consensus and the evidence and so on. Sometimes the people who were creationists would talk about what they feel in their heart to be true or what those that they love uh, believe. And that was why they believed this. And so this led to some more systematic follow-up work looking at, you know, what do people take to be a good reason for belief? And does this vary across science and religion? So one finding is that if you compare people who are more religious, and in, in this particular context, it was people who endorse some form of creationism versus people who endorse some form of um, non-theistic evolution, you do find that on average, they consider these things to be differentially good reasons for belief. So the people who are on the side of creationism think that what you believe in your heart is a good reason for belief. What those who you love believe, that's a good reason for belief. What you think would be morally good, that's a good reason for belief. Whereas the, uh, the people on the science side are more likely to say things like scientific evidence and scientific consensus are good reasons for belief. What I think is, is perhaps even more surprising is that within the same person, you can get people endorsing different reasons for belief depending on whether it's in the domain of science versus the domain of religion. So we did these experiments where we went through this very convoluted procedure to try to find one, some scientific claim and some religious claim that a given person endorsed equally strongly. Mm. So if somebody gave a confidence rating of seven out of, uh, I can't remember what our scale was, but say six out of seven that God exists, we had to find some scientific claim they also endorsed with a rating of six out of seven. So, you know, they might be as confident that God exists as they are that there are tectonic plates or something like that. Yep. yep. <laughs> we find these two kinds of claims. And then we would ask them questions about, well, what do you think is a good reason for belief about these specific beliefs or about the domain in general? And even the same person will say that when it comes to scientific claims, good reasons for belief are things like scientific evidence and scientific consensus and so on. But when it comes to religious claims, good reasons for belief are things like what I feel in my heart, what those I love believe, what I think is morally good to believe, and so on. So you have all of these considerations that are not what we typically at least think of as sources of evidence. I mean, there might be a further conversation about what, what, is, what is a real source of evidence, but we wouldn't typically think of these things as sources of evidence. And nonetheless, people think they're a good reason for belief. And, and it sounds like it's almost that, that some of the challenges that we're facing now, I mean, we're, we're seeing, for example, a lot of a lot of Republicans saying we should have unity here. And a lot of Democrats are saying, wait a second, we need accountability for, for what happened right now. Right. So, so they're that in many ways, people are talking past each other because they're not even really agreeing on what should be the terms of the argument um, there that, that 
what is a good what is a good reason to believe and then act on something we're not even talking in the same language about what's what is it what should be the evidence to be able to to move forward on some of these some of these choices yeah that's right i mean i think one of the differences here is what people are taking to be a good reason for belief one of them is is how they're construing relevant events right um uh but um Another one too, I think, which comes up in the domain of politics is going to just be, what do you consider to be a relevant authority and the source that you trust and defer to, mm-hmm. right? So in, in most realms of, of human life, we're not the personal experts on things. We defer to people we trust, right? So um, most of us, when we go decide to take a Tylenol for a headache or something like that, it's not because we ourselves have done the research <laughs> to figure out <laughs> um, whether or not this is an effective uh, way to reduce headaches or anything like that. Um, it's because, I mean, perhaps we do have some personal experience, but largely we're deferring to a certain community of experts who we think are trustworthy in this domain for various kinds of reasons. Um, and so I think in the case of science, even there, it's not straightforward who we should count as an expert, but it's at least more straightforward than it is when we get to domains like, well, who is the expert when it comes to political matters, moral matters, religious matters, I mean, within religious communities, you might have well-defined structures of deference and authority where you might think, well, you're supposed to defer to, to this, this rabbi or this particular court structure and so on. Um, but I think it's really not at all clear how you defer. And so if you have people who are starting out in different places in terms of which sources they consider to be the authoritative sources, it's going to be very hard to get everybody to agree because the disagree, you know, the, the disagreements go very, very deep to the very sort of foundations of what we even consider to be a reliable source of evidence and a reliable authority in the first place. And that's a very difficult thing to, to change. And I think part of this was actually something that came up in our conversation last week, which is um, the phrase that's been going up a lot and going out a lot is trust the science, trust the science. And if the question is, should I trust Dr. Fauci, or should I trust my aunt on Facebook who said this, right? That, that's, that's actually a very easy piece on this. But if it's a question of um, who do I trust in terms of being able to roll out the vaccine effectively and to be able to make sure the right people are getting the right vaccination for the right reasons, that's not a scientific question. That's, a, that's an ethical question. That's a policy question. There's argumentation that can happen there. Um, and, and I think without having those conversations, we're losing a lot of what we're able to be able to do. And, and, um, and I think being able to have religious leaders being able to say, I am going to take the vaccine when it's ready, that would be a very powerful statement for, for a lot of people here. Um, and, and, and there are elements of also identity markers of saying, I am not going to wear a mask because of X or Y or Z, or I am not going to take the vaccine because of X or Y or Z. And that denigrates what public health is, but that's because their reasons for doing that are different than a scientific reason. It's a, I think it's, it's more of an identity piece of that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one distinction that I find useful in my research and that I think other psychologists talk about as well, this isn't just me, is we often differentiate in my work between epistemic considerations. So considerations that have to do with getting accurate knowledge, representing the truth, um, trying to get an accurate representation of reality. 
and non-epistemic reasons. And so non-epistemic reasons could be moral reasons, could be social reasons, could be personal preferences and so on. And so you might think that broadly speaking, science is an epistemically motivated kind of enterprise where we're trying to get an accurate representation of the, of the world, whether or not we like it, whether or not it's ultimately morally good or not. We just want to, we're aiming for accuracy there. Um, the first example I gave you about giving the benefit of the doubt to a friend, you can think of that as a tension between an epistemic and a non-epistemic kind of consideration, right? On the one hand, the epistemic consideration is you want to be accurate in your beliefs. You want to base them on the evidence. On the other hand, you might think that there's a loyalty kind of consideration. That's a non-epistemic kind of consideration. And so one thing that um, has been argued for, I think pretty convincingly recently, is that a lot of things that on the face of it seem like they should just be epistemic claims, things like, is human activity causing contributing to global warming? Um, uh, how many counts were there? <laughs> what was the vote count in Georgia? Uh, and pieces of, of the, yeah, I've seen this with, with, with um, racial justice and gender equality and, and, and different pieces there as well. Yeah, that's right. So get, getting to you know, claims about racial difference, claims about some of them, not all of them, but some of them arguably are just descriptive claims that are either true or false. But what you see is that they start to take on a lot of non-epistemic kinds of roles. And so you already alluded to one of them, which is something like a social signaling, saying which club you belong to, right? Um, so if you're wearing a mask, you're in one club. If you're not wearing a mask, you're in a different club. And it might be really important to you which club you're in and to signal to other people which club you're in. But now you've taken something that you, well, I mean, in that case, it's also a policy issue. So that one's complicated. But if it's something about, you know, saying the vote count was this, or humans are or are not contributing to climate change, um, it, on the face of it, it looks like it's just an epistemically, a claim that should just be about epistemic stuff, just is it accurate or not. But in fact, it takes on all of these other non-epistemic kinds of factors that influence what people end up believing. And I'm wondering, you know, part of the conversation that's happening in our country right now is that many of the conversations that we're having with the people that we agree with are all talking it, about it in an epistemic way of saying, how, how can all those other people not understand the way the world is, but trying to talk to somebody who uh, has a different epistemic worldview, that's actually, they're, they're not going to change their epistemic worldview. They're, they're, and, and, and trying to be able to say, I think Democrats and liberals tend to be talking to talk a lot about, about, um, data and facts and things along those lines um, were, in fact, that I think it's, it's questions of relationships and emotions. And, and, and what's interesting is that it's the people on the right, actually, who tend to say, we're all about the facts. Facts don't care about your feelings and things along those lines. But in fact, I think there's, there's a lot of emotion that happens there as well. Yeah, I have, I have a fantasy I'll tell you about. Maybe you can t tell me how to realize this fantasy. <laughs> So I think a lot of the cases that you're talking about are problematic precisely because people don't recognize what they are endorsing or doing for epistemic versus non-epistemic reasons. And my fantasy is that somehow people could have a clearer notion of this and that this could help with a lot of disagreements. And I'll give you an example of something that I think is a little like this. Um, so you might believe that your kids are the best kids in the world, and I might believe that my kids are the best kids in the world. And there's some sense in which we might think we can't possibly both be right. <laughs> but I also suspect, I mean, I can't speak for you. I suspect we would both be willing to say, you know, really, when I say my kids are the best kids in the world, I don't really mean that as an 
as a claim subject to epistemic evaluation, I'm not really saying that as something that aims at accuracy. When I say that, I'm saying something about how much I love my kids and how much I value my kids. And so even though on the face of it, it might seem like it's something subject to epistemic evaluation, really there's something else going on in that case. Um, And my fantasy is that people could more clearly demarcate why they might be inclined to endorse certain kinds of things, such that when they say something like, I don't think humans are causing climate change, they could actually take a step back from that and say, well, actually, you know, I'm not really committed to the epistemic (laughs) claim there. (laughs) What I really want to express is this other stuff about these other values that I consider to be important. And if we could somehow cleanly separate this out, I feel like we would be in a much better place to have a conversation and to, to come to some kind of um, agreement. Um, but as I said, it is a fantasy. I don't know how to do that. So if you have any ideas for how to do that. Well, it's interesting because there was, there was a question that, that, that came up that, that links to this about, about the link of, um, of science and, and Jewish law that, you know, there's, you know, there's no, for instance, there's no archeological evidence of the Exodus, but we believe it occurred. And I actually think that links nicely to, at least within the Jewish conception of, um, of, a phrase that that is both wonderful and problematic for a lot of people of of um, of the Jews being seen as the chosen people, right? God chose the Jewish people, but I, I think you can see this in other religious communities as well, which is um, God having a relationship with an individual or a community in this kind of way. And I think a lot of a lot of Jews find it both inspiring and really don't want to be able to say like, okay we're the best, right? That's, that's no, we're not going in that kind of, but it does mean that God has a relationship with, if you're Jewish, I believe that God has a Jew, God has a relationship with the Jewish people, or if you're Christian, God has a relationship with me personally and, or my community in this kind of way that I don't think it is necessarily an epistemic way, right? I'm not going to be able to prove this scientifically in the same way. I don't think that we could prove Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I don't think we could prove that the Red Sea split. I think that trying to do that in an epistemic way ends up becoming problematic. But with it being able to say, um, when I say God has a relationship with the Jewish people, that there's an analogy of that, of how I love my children, that there is a relationship and there is a history um, and there is a connection that is there that I want to build on and I find valuable in and of itself rather than having a quote unquote scientific proof in this way. Um, and, and, and raising this question of, of, you know, that, that Jewish holidays and Jewish ideas, they're, they're based on astronomy and we don't look at astronomy necessarily in Jewish law to be able to be astronomers. We do it to be able to look at it for, for, holidays and the times of the year and, and those different pieces that there there's we can use the scientific knowledge but it's not always just for the scientific knowledge it's sometimes to be able to build and connect on that relationship yeah that's interesting i i wonder if i mean maybe i wonder if judaism offers any vocabulary that would help here i feel like sometimes the problem is we don't have a good way to say i believe this for reasons that are not epistemic but it's still really important, but it's still really valuable, but it's not just a mere opinion, right? I, I feel like we're sort of, at least I feel like I'm, I'm lacking a vocabulary that allows us to say, you know, 
I can say this is not factual, but I also don't want to say it's a mere opinion or all opinions are equally good and that it's okay for you to prefer vanilla ice cream because clearly chocolate is better, right? I don't know how to talk about that, that middle ground. We want to be able to say, this is really valuable. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and here are my perhaps non-epistemic reasons for thinking it's really important. And that's, I think that there's one of my favorite lines that, that someone said about about the Torah, at least, is something doesn't have to be factual for it to be true. Um, and, and I think maybe one way to be able to think about this is, is fiction. Um, and I don't mean fiction as in lies, but, but if you watch any kind of, particularly if you watch Pixar movies or, or often really good pieces of literature that, that creators will say, we're not looking to create a factual representation of what's happening. We're looking for the, the phrase that they'll use is the emotional truth of this. Um, to be able to say, I can resonate in this kind of way. And so um, I think it is without without talking about it as, as being a pure, pure opinion in this kind of way. Um, and I think that's actually part of the, 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 the challenges that's happening right now in our country is that, that the questions are, are deeply emotional, existential questions. And if we're trying to talk about purely as vote counts, um, that's, I can post this and then you can post that in response and you can post this, then you can post that. But one of the, one of the big things that, that people talk about is that community organizing is actually really the way to be able to, to get people connected because it's, you're building the relationship and finding what gets, what gets people emotionally invested in this kind of way. Um, and I think that's that's a that's a real challenge there. How can you talk about something with uh, uh, something about being true and being valuable without necessarily being tied? I don't want to say it this way, but without being tied down to what's being factual here. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I balk a little bit at calling it true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. with a um, lowercase t. Yep. Um, but I, you know, I definitely want there want would want to have a way to talk. This is really valuable, really important, even if it's not factual. And I, I'd want to put truth on the factual side, but this might be just a, a semantic dispute. I'm not sure. Um, and there may, and that may be an also an element of the, so, of the social facts that, you know, the, the, one of the things that we agree on, I think, and, and everything from law to, um, to, to countries, to religion, right. Those are, those are pieces that, that exist because we all agree that they exist here. Um, you know, there was an interesting question that, that, uh, that came up from, from Gail, who said, these ideas remind me of, of research where it's easier to convince someone with strong but not factual beliefs to engage in conversation if you ask where they learned the information or how they learned it to be true. Can we prompt people to reflect in this way sp- spontaneously or, or guess, you know, prompt but not necessarily teach? And I also think there's, there's also the, the question of the backfire effect, right? So how do you open it up so that they have it come at it from a charitable ground of being able to change someone's mind rather than, than an, an attack and a counterattack. Yeah. That's a great example. I didn't know that, that finding, but it's definitely relevant. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious to see you know, if, if you've, if you've seen ways of, of um, the way that they approach these questions of how they, how they know or how they come to these belief systems, if those kinds of questions, if you've seen ways where people have changed their mind on different pieces. No, I don't know of research looking at that specifically, but I also don't know the finding that Gail mentioned. So it suggests there's something there's there's probably more work out there than than what I know of. Um, I mean, I do I do know an interesting line of work that I think 
just helps explain why you sometimes get something like a backfire effect. So I'm, I'm guessing many people know this, but a backfire effect is, is a case where you, know, you present evidence for some proposition and rather than that convincing people or shifting their beliefs towards the proposition, they actually backfires and they, they go the other way, right? So an example would be giving them evidence for anthropogenic climate change, but in fact, now they deny it even more strongly. Um, and at least some of the time, it seems like part of what's going on there is what philosophers of science would call auxiliary hypotheses. We have all these other, other ideas that we can call up that allow us to explain or explain away observations that maybe don't, don't fit our expectations. Um, so in that particular case, there are some common sort of conspiratorial ideas that there's a lot of scientific consensus on an issue because scientists have particular kinds of motives and they're being manipulated by various, you know, uh, 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 sort of goals about getting grants and the way science works and so on. Lots of misconceptions about how science works. But for somebody who has that view, if you give them lots of evidence of scientific consensus about anthropogenic climate change, rather than making them more convinced that it's really happening, they might take that as better evidence that there's something conspiratorial going on, that there's some coordinated nefarious effort. And so the very same piece of evidence can be interpreted in very different ways, depending on what other kinds of background assumptions you bring to bear on the case. Um, so I think thinking about those cases suggests that a lot of it does have to do with what, what's, the, what's the baggage you bring to the situation. And that baggage includes these background assumptions, but also things like which kinds of sources you take to be authoritative and that you're drawing upon. And so if you want to actually have real change in people's beliefs, you might need to go deeper, not just to how do they interpret this piece of evidence, but you know, what are the background beliefs that they are using as a lens through which they interpret that piece of evidence? And what are the sources that they consider to be reliable such that they take those background beliefs seriously and so on? You're going to have to go back several steps to get to a point where maybe you can find something more like common ground or charitable ground from which to begin um, a dialogue. And, and, you know, there was, there was a question that, that just came up too of, of asking, can, your, can moral and ethical relativism be evaluated with your paradigm. And I think that's part of that's part of the challenge because you're using a relativistic paradigm to be able to deal with questions of moral and ethical questions. So so how do we can can we be using this this question of um, of facts versus opinion? Is that also a question of, of moral and ethical relativism of, of having this scale in this kind of way? I see. So it's like, I guess one concern is you might think it's just a matter of opinion. What counts as a fact versus an opinion? That would, <laughs> that would be a concern. But it sounds like another version of it might be a kind of skepticism that there even is a distinction, right, between fact and opinions. Um, isn't this already assuming something? I mean, I think... I think there's a certain kind of radical skepticism that I do not have already response to, right? I mean, there's a certain kind of skepticism that Descartes tried to start with. Well, you know, let me assume that nothing, I'm not starting from nothing and where, where can I get to? Or you're assuming you're, you know, I could be a brain in a vat and how do I know I'm not a brain in a vat? The truth is I, I don't think I have a good solution to those kinds of deeply, deeply skeptical worries, but those are also not the kinds of skeptical worries that keep me up at night, at least perhaps they keep other people up at night. I think there's another kind of skeptical worry, which is more just, um, you know, we look at other people uh, in the news who have views that seem crazy to us, right? And this happens on both sides of, of all of these debates. I'm sure everybody thinks like that, per how can that person possibly believe that that seems insane? How can they take that source of evidence, that source of news seriously? 
And then there's a skeptical worry that sort of does keep me up at night more, which is, well, how do I know I'm not in that situation, right? How do I know that I'm the one on the right side of this evaluation? And I think for that kind of skeptical worry, I'm willing to grant myself certain kinds of basic assumptions that, that there is a shared reality, that induction works. So, you know, the idea that we can use past experience to make reasonable inferences about the future, you know, very basic kinds of assumptions that I think are foundational to the process of science. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of willing to accept those. And I think once you accept those, um, it's not much further to think that there are certain things that are a fact of the matter and that we can investigate those. I don't think it tells us how we get values and how we figure out good reasons for values. I think that's a further conversation. But I think, that, you know, just if you take science seriously, I think you, you, you quickly get to the point where there are certain things that are a fact of the matter. And if you don't take science seriously, I think you have a real challenge explaining how we created the technology that's allowing us to talk right now. You know, it's, it, it's, it's miraculous that we were able to do that if, if we don't have these processes that actually allow us to use our experience to make reliable inferences about the way things are. Right. And I think that that's, there's a, there's a phrase that is a little bit loaded, but I'll use it anyway, which is that, you know, the word is faith, but, but I think that the Hebrew word of, for faith is emunah, which really means trust, which is I'm going to trust that this is accurate. I do not have the tools to be able to evaluate the work that you're doing. I, I don't have the, the tools to be able to, to evaluate the effectiveness of the vaccines. I actually don't have the tools to be able to effectively evaluate political arguments because I, you, need, you need a certain level of, of expertise in this kind of way. So I need to be able to trust the people who are making this kind of decisions. And, and, and I think one of the biggest problems that, that we're facing is that we've lost a lot of trust in our leaders. I think we've lost a lot of trust in ability to be able to find shared realities here. And so, um, and so being able to, to find what is that shared reality, where can I at least find a point of, of charitable ground um, that at least could potentially allow us to move forward. Um, but we also are human beings, right? There, I've, I've had I have a few friends who are who are still very convinced that that you know, a lot of different things over this last week, and and I have been very tempted to be able to post responses to them, and I am holding back on doing that because I'm thinking what what would be the point? I'm not going to be changing their mind in this kind of way, um, and and I think living in in all of these alternate realities has become really difficult, and and, and we need to be able to find out where can we find points of, of, of connection and, and at least shared understanding here. Yeah. I, I wish I had great answers. I, I share this set of, of complex concerns about this. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think there is the, the problem you pose operates at many scales, right? And so you might not want to start a fight with one of your Facebook friends, for example, uh, because you don't think it'll go anywhere in the same way that at Thanksgiving for many families, you know, politics are kind of bracketed, right? We kind of just agree to disagree for that evening so that we can have a nice family experience. And I think that might be okay, but I think we can't have that attitude towards the larger societal issue, right? Mm-hmm. So at some, at some scale of this problem, we're going to have to engage and be willing to have the hard conversations, um, and what I don't know is, is what's the most productive and effective way to do that. Right. 
Right. And that's, I think that's, that's the hard challenge, which is my, I mean, my rule of thumb is, is often, is this going to be a constructive conversation? Um, and, and that's why I, I tend not to talk to a lot of people like Richard Dawkins. And I also don't talk to a lot of people um, necessarily who are young earth creationists to be able to talk about these kinds of questions because they're, I, I have trouble believing that they would be able to hear me and I would have trouble believing that I would be able to hear them. Um, and yet there, there actually, I think is a, there is a wider swath of people than we might expect who would at least be willing to engage in this kind of conversation. I think we need to be able to be more charitable to be able to, to say, I can engage in this conversation and, and it may be more constructive than I would think. And the only way I would know is if it's, is, is if I engage in this conversation, but, but I think probably coming back at it of how and why are you such an idiot is, is not going to be an effective way to be able to, to move that forward. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you're right. There's, there's sort of different types of people is the way you've characterized it, but there's also different contexts. And I think that's something that might require further thoughts. So I'll give you a personal example, which is not, this is, this is anecdote. I don't have good evidence for this, but um, I've been, I've been vegetarian for a long time. And one thing that happens when you're vegetarian is that you sit down for a meal with somebody new, or you're going to their house for a dinner party or you're at a restaurant and it comes up that you're a vegetarian. And often they're asked, oh, well, why are you vegetarian? Or, or they, they just tell you something, right? And you have to decide, am I going to, in this moment, engage in the arguments for why I think it's unethical to eat meat? Uh, and so for a long time, I had the policy that I, I would tell people, you know, I'm really happy to have this conversation because I have thought about this a lot and I have opinions about it. But as a policy, I will not have this conversation over a meal. Um, and that was because people are very uncomfortable and very defensive mm -hmm. if you try to engage them on these issues while they are eating meat or, or, you know, or wishing they had ordered the meat or resentful that they are, you know, ordered something else. Um, I wonder what the equivalent of that is for some of our current issues. You know, I think right now it's especially hard to engage because we're trying to engage over the fraught issues in a moment when they uh, are consequential. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we have the luxury of waiting for a moment where things aren't fraught, but, but might there be ways to start not with those fraught issues or not in the most fraught contexts, but in the ones where we can maybe think a little bit more uh, in, in a way we're not so personally invested in the moment in a way we're not so defensive. I, I don't know what the equivalent of the conversation that's not over the meal is for politics. Maybe you have ideas. Right. No, that, I think that that's an interesting idea of, and, and that's, and, and sometimes, um, sometimes we need both the rational, the rational and the emotional, because the emotional is what gets us riled up. I mean, the, one of the most powerful things that I saw was um, about Sandy Hook, which said Sandy Hook did change everything. People decided killing kids was okay, right? Like that's the and 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 you know the the we've lost the emotional. Valency, or we're seeing people who are so upset that they that Twitter got rid of their bot followers and they lost thirty thousand Twitter followers, and 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 they're not concerned about the fact that three thousand people are dying every day because of COVID. Um, and so we need to be able to have that emotional connection, that emotional relationship. But I think some of it is, is how do you have the parameters of that conversation so that there's an agreement of what are, what are we going to be talking about in this kind of way? And I think that's, that's a, that's a helpful, and, and it sounds like also to be able to say of, I'm happy to talk to you about this, 
but I'd like to know why you're asking it, right? Like that's, I, you know, I, I'd like to know what, what are you hoping to be able to get from asking me this question? Um, and that probably allows them to know, like, I'm just sort of curious about your story without feeling like it's a judgmental thing and, 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 and can actually then have a wonderful meal in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows them to be ready for the, whatever the conversation is. And that may then change what their perspective is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I've only seen sort of indirect evidence for this, but I think there's a compelling idea in a lot of psychology that if you can first establish the human relationships, just as normal human relationships, right? You know, we're both, we're both parents. We can bond about that. We're both people who have or haven't had this medical issue or this travel experience or, you know, all of these other facets of life, or we both like cooking. There's all of these things that you can, you can create a human connection around that are not the religiously fraught ones, the politically fraught ones, and right. so on. And if you have that foundation, you're then going to be in a very different position for engaging these issues uh, than if the only point of engagement and the entry point for engagement are these issues. And you know, there's a phrase that we've we've been using a lot, which is relationship equity. To be you know, you, you need to be able to build a lot of relationship equity. Um, and I think that's because that's one because the relationship equity there's value in just simply having the relationship there. But then you can draw on it if you need to. Um, and if, but if there's no equity there, then it, then it, then it degenerates, but being able to build those conversations about what seem to be silly, banal things, they actually build relationships and connections and, and, and allows us to be able to help us move forward. God willing, that's our, that's our hope at least. Yeah. Um, well, Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to be able to think and talk about these questions. I wish we could solve them all um, here in our hour, but um, but your insights and your work of trying to explore these different kinds of questions help us give an insight into who we are as individuals and as a society and our relationships. So thank you so much for taking the time here to talk this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me. And you've given me a lot to think about and more motivation to try to try to get to the bottom of some of these issues. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sacred Science and the complicated nature of what we mean when we say the word believe. You can follow Professor Lombroso and her work on Twitter at Tanya Lombroso. Our guest next time will be Professor Elaine Howard Eklund, a professor of sociology in the Rice University Department of Sociology and the director of the Religion and Public Life Program in Rice's Social Science Research Institute. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit Sinai and Synapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Sinai and Synapses, on Twitter at Sinai Synapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at judaismunbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon. And Kol Tuv, all good things.